Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for this episode of Mix Masters is John Tanner. John has spent the majority of his career working as a front-of-house engineer in and around the Flint, Michigan area. He's toured with Taproot, but has spent the majority of his career as the extremely talented and experienced house engineer at the Machine Shop. The Machine Shop is infamous. Bands from all over the world line up to play at the venue, and one of the reasons why it's such a popular club is because of John. As I talked with him, it dawned on me that we are nearly the same age, spent the majority of our careers in the Midwest, and have mixed on a lot of the same gear. Where we're different is he's highly regarded and almost legendary, and I'm, well, I'm still trying to figure out what I am. All kidding aside, John's stories and approach are second to none. I hope you'll enjoy this episode with John Tanner. Hey, John, I want to welcome you to the podcast today and thank you in advance for taking time out of your day to be on the show. Well, thanks for having me, man. been looking forward to it. Well, yeah, not as much as I have because I have heard just unbelievable great things about you from everybody I talk to. It seems like every guest that I've had has mentioned you or has asked me to say hi to you. But I guess that comes from working at one of the most popular venues in the Midwest for so long. Let's just jump right in here. I'd, I'd really like to learn a little bit about your history. How did you get started in music? How old were you? What type of instruments were you playing? And uh, let's go from there. Um, I'm an organic bass player. I'm not a, not a guitar player that got frustrated. I just always wanted to play the bass right from the start. That was my instrument. I knew I was going to be a rock star. That's what I was going to do with my life. Spent a lot of years chasing that dream. Had a ton of fun even became a decent player. It was never great. You know, I played with a few great musicians, those guys that had that special something about the way they played and the way they, you know, they didn't have to try like me. I could go home and practice the part and get pretty good at it, but it just didn't happen for me the way I saw it happening for a lot of these guys. Eventually I got hungry, like a lot of musicians do. Couldn't pay the bills, couldn't, uh, and then every week I was borrowing money from the sound guy to get through the week. Finally, the light bulb went off and I went, hey, I'm going to do that because that guy gets paid every week. Every week we don't make money all the time, but we always pay him. So that's that's kind of what forced me in that direction. And then I, you know, I had a, a lot of friends that played music, started mixing their bands, uh, a band called Lazy Bones, a local band that was, you know, kind of king of the heap in this region worked for them and cut my teeth on every piece of crap gear there was around the state of Michigan. And uh, yeah, I started working with that. And then uh, I had a couple other friends that worked at a local sound company called JR Sound Company doing uh, regional things, just providing PAs for whatever. 
and uh, texts for those that didn't have their own. And they told me, you know what, if you just have enough uh, stick to I don't know, keep showing up. Just show up. Just keep showing up. He won't have the balls to send you home, and eventually he'll start paying you. And that's what I did. I just kept showing up to the gig, showing up. You got show? Okay. I'll be there. I'll help you load. And pretty soon the guy just started handing me some money at the end of it. So I work there now. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the, the long or the, the short, quick story as to, to how I progressed into where I got my start in sound. Yeah. Do you remember roughly when you made the transition from playing bass to starting to mix some shows? Mm, it would have been late 80s, 89, 90-ish. Yep. Right, right around then. About the same time, yeah. But like I said, I've listened to enough of your shows now. I feel like I know I know a little bit more about you. Very similar time frame as to when we got into it and the how we got our our start and the way it went. And that I stayed with this regional sound provider. You know, probably a lot of it was just for fear of if I go out there on the road, I'm on my own and I don't have a gig tomorrow or next week or the week after that when this gig is over and looking back i probably probably should have jumped on a couple of those those rides that were available but i had the sure thing and i liked it i was having fun with it i liked the people i worked with and was learning a lot so that was the route i took it's always easier to look back and say i should have done that or i wish i had done that i do that with the stock market almost every other day i'm like i look at it (laughs) i'm like oh if i'd only invested you know ten dollars in microsoft back in the 80s right (laughs) but uh (laughs) That's the benefit of hindsight, I guess. But you did eventually jump on a tour bus with a band called Taproot, and uh, I'd like to talk about that. But do you want to talk a little bit about how did you, you've been at the machine shop a long time. How did you get involved in that role? How did that transpire? How did you go from the regional you know, production company and getting involved with the, with the machine shop? You know, actually the first... 16, 17 years that I spent at the machine shop, I still worked for JR Sound Company because for all those years, he just rented the PA from us and and me. Through a couple of changes there, JR Sound was sort of getting out of the business. I learned a lot from that guy about audio and about how speakers are built and why a box works the way it does not enough to be that kind of a guy in a, in a, you know, working for a speaker, speaker manufacturer. But I understood a lot about it because we did build our own proprietary boxes and they worked really well for us through the years. Uh, we stole a couple of designs from a couple of companies to get our subs built. Uh, but now we, yeah, I still use those subs uh, and that PA basically it's MT twos and fours on the bottom. And then the top is a, a box made by a guy named Dave Clark, not the musician, but a designer. I think he worked for, I want to say Evie, way back in the day. Uh, anyways, it's a Clark mid-design with a, a JBL two-inch horn. And it's the same box in many different shapes that I've used through my whole career. So, yeah, I know a lot of things about my PA that I can help people with if they're uh, inclined to ask. A lot of people just don't want to have the local guy help them. But uh. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were talking a little bit about that before the show, and I'd, I'd like to go down that path if you don't mind again. But uh, you had such a great story about that. And uh, you were talking about you're the, the house sound engineer at, at Machine Shop and 
guys weren't ready to take your advice and, and you know the system, but do you want to take it from there and just sort of go? Yeah, I would, I would, I just couldn't understand it. You know, I was, I was used to being the guy out, basically the, the SE, uh, on all these regional festivals and fairs and, you know, working with fairly professional people, fairly professional coming through and, and taking care of their sound and, and, and getting the rig the way they need it and helping them with my rig. And then I started working at the machine shop, same rig, uh, just a, a bit of a, a smaller scale, I guess, than what I was used to. Not a ton smaller because it's a decent sized club. It's a 550 seater, not huge, but good enough to put on a good rock show and feel good in there. I just couldn't understand why nobody would listen to me. They wouldn't take any of my advice. Nobody, you know, even, even if they were having an issue and I could come over and go, uh, you know, you're going to have to, you're going to want to notch that a little bit around 315, 250, right around there. This, there's just a lot of it in here and there's not really, really much I can do about it in, in the processor anymore. So you're going to want and people would just, yeah, yeah, I got it. I, I don't, you know, so I couldn't understand it. I didn't get it. And I finally, uh, took one of the tours that had been offered through the years. Uh, the guys in Taproot I'd worked with many times and I enjoyed working with them and they were great guys and asked me to go out and do their tour. And I was like, well, sure. Let's, uh, I had somebody lined up to cover me. So I had my gig when I came back and everything, it was working out nice. I got out on the road and I suddenly understood why nobody would listen to me because we did every three to 800 seat venue around the country it seemed and oh my gosh those PAs were so cobbled together and just torn up and and the people that I had to deal with to set these PAs up and and try to get what I wanted out of them I, I suddenly understood why they didn't listen to me because they met that guy and they just thought I was that guy I, I get it now I was I was that local guy <laughs> We've, we've all run into that guy in, a, in our histories. <laughs> and bless their heart, they're nice people, but they don't understand that, no, no, we do this for, prof- it's my profession, it's what I do. I, I want to do it as well as I can. It's not just for beer and pizza on the weekend when I'm off from my other job. No, no, I want to do this, and I want to do it as well as I can. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was interesting to learn that that mentality and and like i said uh earlier it's interesting to me the way that it has evolved working at the machine shop initially the first four to seven eight years there nobody wanted to hear my opinion at all then the place became more famous more you know we we have a nice process there and it works really well for putting on a show it's really smooth. Uh, Kevin and all of the crew at the machine shop really know how to take care of you and get you what you need and get it quickly. I understand that that doesn't happen everywhere in the country now. At first, I just that's that's the way shows have always been to me. I, I was lucky and worked for a company right from the start that really took care of people, got them what they need, did everything we could. Anyways, you know we're still 550 seat venue in Flint, Michigan. I can't get you your SSL console if that's what you're looking for but but yeah within reason we we do everything that's necessary to get your show off and that just seems like that should be common but it's not 
Yeah, <laughs> it, it is surprising. I would say in my limited experience of touring, I, the, those venues are a lot better in general than what I experience in my hometown here. But it is, uh, it is funny to me that venues almost are not hostile, but not, they're like passive aggressive towards artists sometimes. And I, I don't understand that. I, you know, I don't get it either. And, you know, I've, I got to admit, I've had those days where I just don't feel like dealing with it today. And, you know, the guy gets off the bus and he's maybe wanting me to jump through a lot of hoops that I don't understand why. And uh, I've gotten cranky about it. I'm not going to say I haven't, but I try not to be that guy. And the, the older I get and the longer I've been around, the more I realize that that guy's just, you know, worried about his show. He's just trying to get it off the way he knows how. Maybe that's not going to work that way on ours today, but uh, I've learned I have to take a different approach to how you uh, how you get on the same page with the guy because that's what it is ultimately. At the end of the day, we're going to find a way to make your show happen the best we can with what we got and what you got. But yeah, it's uh, to get back to what I was started to say, and then I talked myself into some kind of weird loop <laughs> that what happened through the years was the machine shop got more and more respected. And now instead of not wanting to hear what I have to say, I get people coming through asking my opinion. What do you, what do you think? People calling me up or sending me messages asking my views on things. And it's just funny to me the way that's changed through the years. Cause I, I'm the same guy I was. I don't have any more knowledge really. I mean, yeah, I do. Cause we all learn things all the time that never stops, but it's funny to me the, the way that, I'm viewed by the guys coming through compared to the way I used to be. Uh, I mean, I've seen it evolve and it's really kind of funny. Kind of, it's cool. It's cool to be a part of something like that, that just kind of grew. I mean, I came into the club going, yeah, I'll take your money for about six months because that's what's going to happen. Another rock club is going to crash and burn. I've been watching it happen around here for years, but no, this one stuck around. And he did it right. He took care of the artists, made sure that they had what they want to the extent that acts that were way too big to play our club anymore still want to come and play our club. You know, management's like, no, I'm not going to take percentage of that tiny room when I could book you over here with 20,000 seats, but they still want to come. So they, they push until they make it happen. It's, it's really it's fun to do big bands in a small place. Yeah, you get that, you get all that energy and all of that experience, and then you pack it into a little intimate space, and it really does make for a special event. Does anything surprise you anymore these days? Have you have you uh, seen anything of well, not of late, but in the last couple of years that you just had to scratch your head and you're like, wow, that's a new one on me? Oh, dude, <laughs> so many things in the past few years. Uh, both things that I probably should have scratched my head and went, wow, that's just insane. And I was right. And other times where I was thinking that's just insane and it's the latest, greatest, newest thing. And now I'm going, Oh wow, I have to do that. <laughs> so, so yeah, on both ends of that spectrum, I've got things that are, that blow my mind all the time. Had some pretty fun, interesting shows there through the years. Uh, I was trying to think of some things that stuck out in my mind as, everybody's always like, oh, what's your favorite band? But I don't know. I've been mixing there for 20 years now. We do, you know, I don't know. I don't even know how many hundred shows every year. Uh, for those 20 years, man, there's been a lot of really good ones. But one that really sticks out as 
was a nightmare to do, especially because it was uh, in the analog days still. So we did Nonpoint and Skindred had a tour, a co-headline tour, where we set, well, they decided when they got there, hey, it's the end of the tour, it's the last date. Let's set both bands up simultaneously on a 40-channel console with, well, eight of those channels being eight up for returns. But we did it. <laughs> we did some crazy things, got two drum kits set, and, and basically they traded off. They did a co-headline, but they played one song from Skindred, one song from Nonpoint, and back and forth all night simultaneously with both sound guys working together sharing the things they had to and it it was a nightmare to put on but man what a cool show it was when it was done i can't imagine do you happen to remember what the console was for that show the 40 channel that was a an m3000 man i hated that console the yamaha m3000 you know i yamaha's never i shouldn't say never because a couple of their like the pm series i didn't I didn't mind the PM 3K or 4K. I never got my hands on a 5K analog. But every other Yamaha console I've been on just seems so thin, brittle. I hate on you, Yamaha. You're still out there listening somewhere. I mean, your stuff's probably way better nowadays. But I've I've heard their preamps described as being clean, and to me, that that my experience is exactly yours. They always just sounded a little too harsh a little too little too bright for my liking yeah there's no no that warmth and i you know my <laughs> i'm not the most technically minded sound man I, I always often say i'm i'm the i'm the best sounding hack you'll ever hear because <laughs> somehow i end up with the sound that i like and I, I really dig what i'm getting but my gain structure is wrong i run it a little hot Again, I think that's from being primarily an analog guy for so many years. That's even after everybody went digital, we didn't have the money. So I was still analog and I was just hammering them pre's. And that's that's where I got what I'm used to. I think that's why I, I kind of like Midas because you can still do that. Uh, and I do want to talk about your Midas setup. And I see some awesome outboard gear behind you, especially like the, the Neve uh, unit I want to I, I saw on your Instagram feed that you just acquired that and have been playing around with it yeah it was unfair I only get like a couple shows on it and then they shut everything down I'm like oh, I just scratched the surface of this thing it's cool I I just wanted to chime in and and echo or not echo but maybe sort of support that you know we consider I consider myself a hack and you said you said that of yourself which is the farthest thing from the truth but I watch all these things online and I, I convince myself that I'm doing things wrong, but yet they still work. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I was just thinking today, oh, I'm really losing it. I don't know how to do any of these things these guys are talking about. How did I even make a living this last 30 years of my life doing this? I'm just not good at it, but, but that can't be true. <laughs> Because, um, well, I don't know. I've seen some guys that are pretty bad out there still doing it. So maybe maybe I'm not good at it. But I like the way it sounds when I'm done. And, you know, that's that's the thing about sound. That uh, There's a sound guy uh, that for years I always saw him and always heard his mix. And was like, oh, my gosh, that guy is awful. It's just the worst. 
why would anybody hire him? And then uh, we were busy. I got loaned to his company, worked with him for a weekend on a big festival, and was like, oh, my gosh, that guy knows how to use every piece of gear. He knows what he's doing. I always thought he was just a total idiot. But it wasn't. It's a point of view. He's looking for a mix that nobody wants to hear. You know, it's that point of view, that that part that can't be taught. He's getting exactly what he wants out of that rig. It just hurts. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, oh, gosh, that's bad, dude. But to him, that's what sounds good. Yeah, I always wonder in those scenarios, like, do they have some sort of hearing damage in a certain area or, you know, that it sounds right to them? But I think that's I just got lucky. You know, I got I got that ear that 80 percent of the population agrees with. You know, uh, that's the only thing I can really say. I, I'm definitely not smarter than these guys or better at using the techniques. I just am looking for a sound that people like. I guess. I mean, that's that's my view on it. I would have argued that 80% number, but when I was on the road with uh, Stitch It Up Heart and Steel Panther last fall, Nick Rucker is an amazing front-of-house engineer. He makes Steel Panther sound unbelievable night after night, and he crushed it at a venue, and I can't remember where it was, unfortunately, or probably fortunately, and this guy came up at the end of the show, and he goes, hey, are you the sound guy? And Nick turns around and he goes, yeah, yeah, I am. And he goes, man, you got a lot to learn. I, your mix just was not sounding good and i my i think my jaw landed on my shoelaces because i couldn't believe that this guy was saying that but it just goes to prove everybody's you're not going to make everybody happy no matter how hard you try or what you're doing no no it's impossible i stopped mixing for those people a long time ago i, I even explain it to them thank you thanks for your opinion but they hired me they hired me you go out and get this job, you can mix it however you want, but I'm going to keep doing it the way I do it because that's what gets my family some food tomorrow. So thanks for your uh, thoughts, but go enjoy the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or or uh, my favorite is, I can't hear my son's guitar. Well, the truth is, sir, I could, and that's why you can't. <laughs> I have... I've. Uh, I'm not even going to go there. Uh, let's talk. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your touring experience, and then we'll go back to things at the machine shop. So, for a period of time, you were on the road with Taproot. How did you go about getting that gig? And and do you want to share any experiences or thoughts from from that time frame? You know, um, like I said, I'm not sure. I, I guess I started doing a couple fly dates for them here and there. They had uh, being a Michigan band. I I'd run into them through the years in different places mixing and uh, got to know them pretty well once they uh, came through the machine shop and I'd, I'd done quite a few shows with them there. And then uh, I'm not sure who it was that actually, no, um, it was Jared, the original drummer who initially contacted me and asked if I'd be interested in doing some fly dates and, and did some of that with some fun show out in, in uh, the old part of Vegas, old town back where they have that big, the, the cover down the road and everything, right at the uh, end of the road there, there's an intersection, and they shut off the, the intersection. We did a show there. One of my first experiences flying into Vegas and everything, I, I, I figured I had made it at that point. I would have too. It was, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of fun. But I realized how little I really knew there and how... Uh, how much I had uh, lost being the house guy at the machine shop. 
because I don't EQ the room anymore. It's done. It's been done for years. I know, you know, and I really don't mess with my EQ anymore. It's there. I shouldn't say that. I do go in and play around with it all the time because I never think it's right. But I always come back to that same graph I've been using. But uh, yeah, it was interesting to me when I got out there and started EQing and going, my ears are not as sharp in this area as they used to be because I don't do that anymore. Yes, I can listen to a band and know what I want to change or what I want to, oh, that bass guitar just isn't really present. But uh, you know what I'm saying? I can hear what I want to change in a mix. But as far as setting up a system, changing things in the crossover or, or any of that aspect, I hadn't done it in years. So it was interesting to get that part going again when I got out on the road. And it doesn't take long. It, it comes back. But yeah, you would be surprised how how much you lose just being at the same spot all the time. Do you remember, so for that fly, for those fly date shows, were you specking out any gear or were you just using what they had available from the, the, the provider? No, and I was so green in this area that, you know, I would just show up. You know, I, I came from, that's like, my biggest strength is the fact that I've had my hands tied my entire career. I was always on substandard gear trying to make it work. It's hard to make it work with cobbled together PAs, but that's what makes you good. That that fact that I know that even if you gave me an old PB Mark IV and some crazy cobbled together cables, if you can get me signal through them, that I can make a show happen. It doesn't really matter that much. Sure, I'd like to have this or that or... Now I know a few of the things that I would like to have. Back then I didn't know because I was using whatever my boss had. And when they asked me to go out, I was like, well, sure, I'll mix it, whatever. You know, when we got there, it was already there. I I didn't spec out the gear. Well, then later on when we did the tour, their tour manager was doing it, which part of the way through that run, I kind of took over at least advancing the PA part from him because I'm like, well, why does he keep saying this is okay? And we get here and it's like nothing. He's like, well, I don't know anything about PAs. Well, then why are you advancing that? Let me do that. So I started to advance it, but I was still never that guy that went, well, we want this or trying to make a way to make it work with what you got. I mean, within reason, it passes signal and isn't just a bunch of noise and we'll, we'll get a show off. I'm I'm tempted to hold a competition with you to see who's worked on worse PAs over their career. Um, just to give you some perspective, <laughs> my first uh, my first sort of regional touring, and I use the word touring in quotes because it was basically a bar band when I was in college that I did sound for. Their PA was borrowed from a uh, high school choir and consisted of a couple of Bose 802s over some sonic bass bins uh, and a couple of PV Deca amps, and, uh, of course, a CS800. <laughs> so Deca series. <laughs> Do you that remember the, those? The tan, brown and tan face. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was, that's when, a, when PVs got good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> remember AMR, Audio Media Research? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Their, their high-tech division. Yes. I worked on a lot of PV gear through the years. Hated it all. Hated it all. But you know what? You couldn't make it stop working. No. And this this band tried. It was cheap. You 
it worked over and over again, never worked good. Or, you know, it was never, they were never the best at anything. Stuff just wouldn't quit working. I didn't like, I didn't like what it sounded like when it was working. So I don't know if that's a good thing, but, but it, it would keep working. I just remember that the 60 Hertz hum that was omnipresent in every CS 800 that I ever worked on. Uh, I will not miss that, nor will I miss the 90 pound rack weight or whatever it was. Didn't you just break that third prong off on those? <laughs> it, see, this is the benefit of hindsight. I probably should have done that if it wasn't done. I mean, who cares if somebody gets electrocuted, right? It sounds better. All that matters. <laughs> Anything for the show. <laughs> so how long were you on the road with Taproot? Was it a couple of years? You know, I just did uh, that one tour, really. And and so a couple of years with uh, between the fly dates, I did that tour. I did another short little run for them that I wouldn't even really call a tour. And then, like I said, I, I worked for a couple of other bands on a national level, uh, a version of Days of the New that was phenomenal musicians. But it, it was a, an interesting perspective. I got... I didn't really get let go. I almost got let go on that because we disagreed. He was telling me that I mixed too clear. He wanted everything to be real jumbled up and muddy and, and wanted like, he did this thing with feedback with his acoustics and he would do it on purpose. And it freaked me out at first. I kept trying to fix it. And then he pulled me aside and he's like, I want that. You keep fixing it. It, it fucks me up. So, I mean, we had a hard time getting what he wanted and what I wanted because what they were doing was so good and I wanted it to be so big and full and clean and I mean it was an acoustic thing how do you not have that clean and clear <laughs> but that was what he didn't like he's like I want it more raw and just not so pristine and then well then you got to get somebody else because I don't know how to do that <laughs> so I, I dirtied a couple of things up, ran them a little hotter, distorted his guitar just slightly enough to where it didn't drive me nuts, but it gave him what he wanted and we got through. But uh, what a great bunch of musicians those were to go out with. They were, they were incredible. I worked with another, another group of guys that are great, great band through the years. Uh, Royal Bliss, mostly fly dates again. For them with a place like the shop it keeps me busy most of the time i've tried to find people that could cover me when i do take off and, and do some of these things but it's harder and harder to find people locally that the uh owner of the club will accept which is both a, a nice compliment but kind of a bummer when somebody says hey you want to come out to la for a week or two and do this or yeah i would love to but i can't because I got to keep my house gig. It's it's definitely what keeps me going, keeps the family fed. I get it. That's a nice way to transition back over to the machine shop side of things. So I admit I've not been to the machine shop. I was supposed to be there last summer. You and I were talking about that before we started recording. So I don't really know a lot about the venue. I, I've enjoyed hearing about the, the speakers, but uh, are you using M32 at front of house these days there? Yeah, I have uh, M32 up front of house. We've got an X32 from Monitor World. I don't like to share pre's. I don't, I don't agree with it. 
I want my pre, I want my monitor man to have his own. I know that they say that, you know, there's the one can control it and, and it's yeah. The digital splits. <laughs> no, I want mine. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, in, in anticipation of, well, both, I wanted the best pre that I can get. So I've got the, uh, I got a, a good deal on a couple DL 153s. So I'm using the DL series stage box, which will give me the pro series pre's. I can't use them at, at uh, 96K, but I can use them at 48 and it's still a better pre. It's kind of like I explain it to people. You notice a difference when you go from the X32 to the M32. There is definitely a preamp difference that is noticeable. It's pleasant. It's smoother. It's a little richer and you can treat it more like that analog desk that I like. I can, I can hit it a little hard on the front side and get, get some saturation out of it. It's like that step from an X32 to an M. Again, I noticed the difference when we got the DL-153s. It was a little bit richer, a little bit fuller. So we're getting closer. Plus, you know, I'm going to have to talk Kevin into getting myself, getting me a, a Pro 2 soon. I've already got the pre's sitting there that'll go with that. And the M32 the 30, can go to monitor world, right? So down the road, we, we have plans. We have things in the works. But no, we, we've got the nice pre's, so... I'm really happy with the way it sounds. Uh, again, I spent a lot of years with an M3000 there. This is awesome compared to that. I, I don't know how many times I came in and had to do my four opening bands on the six channels that were left because they ate up the entire console in the analog world and wouldn't trust me to chart their console or anything even. It's like, Come on, dude. We've been working together for years now. You know that I will get every now back where it was. Let me know. So, yeah, when we finally did get an X32 in there, it was like, whoa, this is a whole new world. Nobody can tell me what I can't use anymore. And that's, but again, like, that's what made me good. Here, you got to do your four opening bands. You got these eight channels. You can't touch the graph. And, uh, well, I guess you can use that top effects unit if you don't change the decay on this. All right. And I'll find a way to make it happen. Usually a little bit better than he did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because of my unfair advantage. That's knowing the PA really well. I call that, I think that's a great just desserts that you get to serve up uh, to sort of put it in their face. Yeah, well, not all the time. Some of them come in and just really smoke me. But you know what? That's where you'll find me right straight behind that guy. Because I, I, I want to see how he's doing. I don't, I don't like to get smoked. I think that's not cool. That hasn't worked <laughs> for me. I, I tried that with Nick Rucker. I, I stood next to him for almost every show with Steel Panther, and I nothing rubbed off on me for, so, for some reason. So maybe on the next tour. I've been stealing from these guys for years. Yeah. But now I'm starting to pass it on. I mean, it's it's really cool, man. The the people that I've met and worked with through the years, like uh, uh, the Bryans that are taking over the world. Let's uh, let's be honest about that. Bryans are taking over the sound in- industry right now, and I didn't realize it, but I started two of them. <laughs> but Brian Campbell, who's uh, who's doing Breaking Ben now, and just has done a ton of monster acts in the past ten years was the guitar tech on that taproot run that we went on and finally got i mean i didn't teach him anything i got him behind a desk where he needed to be he uh he had all the knowledge already from doing studio work 
he just hadn't applied it in a live situation. But yeah, that guy's great. And then the other one that I'm super proud to say that I've had even a smallest hand in is uh, Brian Hardiswick. Again, he was a drum tech when he came through with Pop Evil. He's just, he's come leaps and bounds. He's just really, really good now. And he's that guy that he wants to know everything. And that's, that's what makes him great. And he just, the, every aspect of it, he's full on into it and learning everything he can about it. And it's taken in places. It's fun to watch. Yeah. The, both of those guys were so fun to talk with. And that was, I met them through the podcast, obviously, but they, they were super appreciative of you. I talked to them before, during, and after the podcast and you came up several times. And so that's why I reached out to uh, see if you'd be interested in being on. So I, I'm grateful to them. That's really cool. That's like when you asked me, I was like, "Whoa, that's this is blowing my mind." Because like all my heroes are on here, <laughs> the the whole pooch and and everything. It's like the the pooch and Raybold thing killed my idea for doing a podcast. I was like, "Well, I was thinking about actually maybe doing something like that, talking to the guys that come through the shop or whatever, a show maybe biweekly or something." I'm not even gonna try. Those, those guys are just, I don't even know what I could tell people. Uh, nothing next to them. <laughs> I, I, I think the same thing about my show, and I'm surprised by how many people listen to it and that I'm able to get guests. So I think you should go for it and do it because I, I would definitely subscribe and listen. We'll see. Once things get rolling again, everybody else might let up and, and there'd be room for it again. Because I've, I've got a unique situation with the shop like that that, I've got so many great sound guys coming through all the time. It'd be fun to hear everybody's different opinions about things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you either that or you should write a book or maybe do both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was was going to write a book. I was going to call it, I Almost Made It Rock and Roll and You Can Too. A self-help book about all the things that don't get you there. Because I know a lot of them. I know a whole ways... I don't know the way to make it to the top, but I know a whole bunch of ways to not get there for sure. So yeah, keep an eye out for it. <laughs> it's it's. I'm laughing because I joked. I had a sound production company here in Madison for a couple of years, and I, I started it because I got so tired of using equipment that didn't work and going to venues where everything was wrong and trying to make everything work. And I said, you know what? I'm going to make my life so much easier. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this production company buy everything that I want to buy, get it all set up and everything's going to go great. It didn't really work out. And now my book, (laughs) my book, what not to do is going to be right next to your book about how to almost make it. So I think the two, if we, if we sandwich them together and and do like a a chub pack, it'll, it'll be a bestseller. (laughs) Yeah. I almost made it and you can too. That's fantastic. All right. I'm going to try to compose myself here and get us back on track. Are you, I know that you proclaim yourself to be a hack and, and, you know, you're trying to figure everything out, but what are some of your tricks on the M32? Because I toured with an M32. I've used the M32 for years, but I just never could get it to sound the way that I liked it to sound like, are you doing a lot of parallel compression? Are you doing crazy high pass, low pass filtering EQ tricks? Is there anything at all that you can share with me that I can improve my mix? You know, it's... As far as like everything I've been hearing everyone talk about and all these, uh, the parallel compression and things, yeah, I've, I've played around with it. 
Um, in some instances, I can see where it might help and it might be cool. But in my situation where I'm dealing with, I don't know what I'm mixing next. I don't know what that guitar player is going to do or whether this guy can sing at all. Or, you know, I've, I've got no clue what they're going to give me or what it's going to be like. So I am a less is more approach to almost everything. And I've, I've in uh, listening to a lot of these podcasts, uh, a lot of the, I shouldn't say a lot, but quite a few of the ones that I've heard with like bigger guys, guys like the Rolling Stones and uh, some of the Scoville stuff and uh, that I've heard a lot of them don't use a lot of effects, a lot less than I would have thought, or at least that's what they're proclaiming. So it's, I'm, I'm more that approach, I think. Uh, I don't do much to my mix. I don't use a bunch of Waves plugins. Very curious about them. I own some Wave stuff. I've played with it live. Not comfortable enough. I don't, I don't like what I've got to change about the way that I mix. Uh, in the way that I have to use it, maybe I need a different wave setup. But I mean, you know, with the, the meager setup that I've got with just my, uh, what is it? The I don't have the dedicated, I've just run it off my laptop. Yeah, you run it native. Right. And and I've played around with it and I like some of the things that I can get done with it. But it's too specific for, certain, you know, if it, it would work in this situation, but not in these 10 situations that I'm going to have in between that. So for my purposes, I don't use a lot of those things. Some of the tricks that I do are just really weird things within the N32 that probably are technically wrong, but they work. I can't explain why. Uh, quiet singers, we've all had that singer, you know, you get this crushing mix that's just sounded perfect and, oh, you can feel it. And then he starts to sing. And it's like, oh, I'm never going to get that on top of this. I can't. And you start cranking his vocal and you gain it up. And as soon as you get into this gain spot, you start getting that that 3 to 5K feedback or even sometimes down into the 1 to 1.6. You just fight with it and fight with it. Well, I found one day when I was thinking about the digital world, well, why don't I just make another one of him? And put it over here on this channel I'm not using and turn it up. And and I did that. And I could find that I, I could do that up to a certain point. When I would get it up to about negative 20, negative 10 on the fader, again, I'd start getting those feedback problems. But I could add a little bit more without feedback. Now, this doesn't make sense to me because at a certain sound pressure level, we are going to have that loop come back through, right? Well, not as long as I don't go past that negative 20 to negative 10 range with that fader, I can add another one and bring it up and another one and bring it up. As long as I don't go past a certain range with them, and this I can't explain, it doesn't make sense, probably somebody out there has the answer, but it works. I, you know, I have to really fight with it, and but it gets that guy that you can't put on top of the mix on top of the mix and i think it's because i don't have to gain it anymore i'm not i'm not getting volatile in my gain stage i'm adding more volume after that and i don't know why i can't bring it right up to unity and add an but 
I can add, I've done as many as eight channels of one singer, and I won't tell you the band, but they are a pretty famous, I guess, band. Uh, all right. No, that would be too many clues, and people would know what I'm talking about. But they were uh, they were noticed in this whole COVID time of, of things going on in the media. But the guy's just the quietest guy in the world. Can't uh, I, I can't say that he can't sing, because he can. He sounds fine on the record. But you can't put him on top of the mix. I got them there, but I had to use eight channels to do it. Now that's that's my biggest trick, I guess, that I use. It's not real technical, like I say, but it, it got the job done. I can't I can't say why it works, but it works. Do you put those eight channels into a into a DCA or anything like that, or I've DCA'd them to to help me in between because ultimately the person that can't sing is the guy that talks super loud. So. So whenever he gets done talking, now you've got this mic that's like 10 times louder than anything else on the stage, and he's just ripping. So you got to cut that in between. So yeah, I, I try to DCA them together and, and basically ride him all night. Yeah. Uh, are you using any type of outboard processing, or are there any effects or any, any uh, things in the, inside of the M32 that you really like, or, you, or are you sending stuff out as well? Well, I know the Neve. Let's talk about the Neve a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I'm lucky enough now to where, uh, I don't work for the sound company anymore and we don't have to do this the cheapest way possible. Now we're going to do it the best way that we can possibly afford. So it's like, okay, I still can't get the top of the line, but now I can start getting the stuff I want instead of the stuff that I just had to use. So this is a cool situation, something I've I'd never experienced until the last couple of years. Uh, Kevin, the owner, has really kind of let me start specking this system out a little more and, and getting the things we want and getting in the right direction. Uh, we got some new amps, which were the biggest game changer of anything. Uh, I can't believe what changing amps did for me. We had QSC originally, and I used those MX series QSCs for... 30 years. They still worked fine. None of them were failing. Everything was, you know, acting the way it should. Uh, we ran into a whole bunch of macro techs, a whole bunch of macro techs that uh, he got in the deal when he purchased me and the rig <laughs> from one company selling to another. And then ended up Kevin had to buy the rig for the shop because they didn't pay each other and it was a big dispute. And so if he didn't want to lose the rig, he had to buy it at auction. And with that, it's me. So uh, we got all these macro techs along with it. And he bought this sound company out. So we were going to put these macro techs in and finally get big enough power amps. Cause I was always underpowered. The, the biggest thing I had was an MX 2000 on the low ends. Oh, wow. And that was running two boxes, two empty, Twos. So we, I had all these Macrotechs, 5,000s, and I was like, let's put these in. Let's, let's put all these in. So we put them in, and oh, my God, it sounded awful. It was so thin. And things, we were just, we didn't have the power. I didn't realize the amount of power that these things drew, like uh, 35 amps per 5,000. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
okay, we can't really do that. We don't have enough power in the building. We're not going to get a whole new service. So we scrapped that. And I got them to get me some new, the new QSCs, not the MX series, the PLDs. Oh my God. There's low end that I've never, not just more of it, but a spectrum, a part of the spectrum that wasn't there before. It just wasn't there. They didn't go that far down. The old MX series just couldn't do it. And I thought through the years, my old guy, analog stuff that I always learned, power is power. You give me some power, a power amp that works with enough headroom. I don't care. I'll get it done. Not true. <laughs> so not true because they're both QSC. It's, it's, the, it's the same amount of power on my uh, mid-high amps. But there's, there's just a spectrum there that's not there. There's frequencies being produced now that I didn't have before. And, and that was the biggest game changer. It made that PA come to life. Used to have to run it right to the edge just to get the, the big rock show that you wanted. Now, you, I've only had two people clip in the year or two that it's been there. It's, it's a night and day difference. And those couple people that did, it's like, wow. Wow, brother, you got to back off. <laughs> that hurts. That's too much. I, I, I got sidetracked. You were asking about the uh, master bus per, uh, processor that I just recently got. I got him to get that was the next thing. And I wanted something really good. So I went and asked the Bryans and, and uh, all my friends that are out bigger, doing bigger things. And everybody kept coming back saying, man, that, that Portico uh, Rupert Neve thing, the MVP, man, get it. Get it. Check it out. I can't believe how... I mean, I don't know how to use the thing at all. Just setting it flat and plugging it in, it smoothed my rig out immensely. Without, I've never been a fan of compression. I, I On my mains, I've always had some 160 XTs, the old DBX, the old ones, the good ones, a couple 160s. And, and I just use that at like a two to one, right in between two and three to one even. And I would use it at like a plus 10 to plus 20 on, on the threshold. So, I mean, I was not compressing. It was just kind of going through it. Because I don't like to hear it. I don't like compression on my mitts. This is such a different animal. It, it smoothed everything out, yet keeps it very dynamic. It doesn't take the life out of the mix the way old compressors did. Or I shouldn't say old because some of them did. But... Uh, the ones that I've always had to deal with in the past, I, I didn't use much compression on my mains. I can see me using quite a bit more now because I, I can't make it sound bad. <laughs> I've, I've done some pretty radical things with it in the, in the couple shows I've used it on and just everything sounds great. It's a really cool piece. So with that, with the, with the Portico, are you taking your left-right mix out, running it through the Portico, and then sending it to your... And then off to my process. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Are you a left-right guy, or are you left-right sub? Or okay. I am left-right, and it's just because I've never been in a situation to do anything different. I mean, it's just the way that I've always done it. It's what I'm used to. We're in a place at the shop to where, again, it's a 550-seat venue. We've got too much PA for that room, but you're not – it's not – I don't see a need for subs on an ox – in that we don't need that extra separation. We don't need a three-way PA plus a plus a sub. We've already got a three-way. It's 
so close together that stereo is almost pointless. I mean, it's what, 30 feet from, from stack to stack in a concrete room. It's a nightmare room to mix. It's just, I've been there so long that I figured that out. Got my secret spot that I mix to and the rest, forget about it or it'll drive you insane. (laughs) I'm laughing again. Uh, I love how you explain things and because I totally get it and I, I can picture it, you paint just a great picture uh, in my mind's eye. So thank you for doing that. I've got, uh, you know, I, I spent the first two years going crazy, trying every kind of EQ and doing this side different from this side. Let's delay this and move this. And it's just a nightmare and you can't get it to sound right and you're not gonna. You're not gonna. One one side of the PA is right against a brick wall with a huge base bin built in front of it. Don't ask me why it was there when I got there. I begged to have it taken out. It's not going anywhere. It's gonna stay there. But it's a huge hollow step riser built right in front of my subs on the side that couples with the wall. Now the other side of the PA is out in the middle, nowhere, not against a wall. It doesn't couple with anything. I've had so many people tell me that my subs are out of phase on that side. Had to crawl into the boxes and physically show so many sound guys through the years. Nope, it's not. That that now I just don't anymore. I refuse. I'm like, no, take my word for it. It is right. We've been through it. I'm not doing that again. But yeah, it's it, it's amazing how much placement changes the PA. And there's just nothing you can do about it. Anymore. It's not a room that has room to play with it, move it anywhere. So I overpower it. (laughs) I mix the middle, call the rest, whatever it is. Yeah. And speaking of those PLDs that you've got, I will, for anybody who is doubting anything that John said about those, I will vouch for him. Those PLDs are ridiculous. I did an outdoor show when I had my production company with one PLD. I ran my subs bridged on, I think, channel CD, and then I had my left, right tops on AB, and I checked the the metering on it. I was nowhere near clipping. Um, I'm in an outdoor park with like 500 people at the show, and I'm looking at the the power draw on that little amp, and it's pulling like 4.7 amps. <laughs> you know? Well, you must have been hitting it hard at that point because I'm amazed at. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to try this because it would be dumb to try, but I'm pretty sure that I can run my entire PA now, uh, all of the main amps, the front of house rig, every bit of my front of house PA off of 120 amp circuit. I know that I could watching those amps while they're, while they're running. I never see any of them drawing more than two or three amps at a time. And that's the low end amps when I'm hitting them hard. I, I mean, I can't, believe that I could run it all off more than one of those 5,000s, you know, the amount of power that they draw. They're just so efficient. And I'm sure there's a ton of amps out there nowadays, I'm sure, that are like that. But I'm so shocked and surprised because I started with QSC. I ended up with QSC radically different. And and like I said, I was that guy that uh, power is power. It doesn't matter to me. Just give me good clean power. Well, I have to scratch that. That's not true. <laughs> power is not power. There's good power and bad power. Absolutely. And technology is amazing to me. I think about like the the lighting rigs back when I was just getting started and 
we needed, you know, like 80 amps to run our, our par 64s. And, you know, nowadays the led lamps and everything are just ridiculous. You can run, we <laughs> speaking of running off of one 20 amp, I, I had, uh, something like 48 led pars from blizzard and we'd run all, we ran all of those on a 20 amp circuit a number of times and never had any issues. And it blows my mind that that works. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. Our LD Jimmy, uh, we just now switched over from cans just this last year. We had, well, I think you only had 600 watt waters in there, not the thousands that they used to. I think they were, he, he took the lamps down to 600 watt lamps, but I mean, still we had probably 48, 48 to 50, around 50 cans in there. When he would turn an all on or something, at the, if he, if he did an all on, which, I forbid after a while because it sucked all the P- all the power out of the room and you could hear the PA just drop. I'd lose my low end. Sure, the lights got really bright, but bottom end just went away, dude. <laughs> Looks cool, but everybody's going, "What happened?" It sounds awful. <laughs> but yeah, he just recently switched over to LED, and it's just it's amazing. Technology is great. The power company in your neighborhood is probably sending Christmas cards and thank you notes. Well, no, they're probably not because they're charging you less. So it might be the opposite. All right, John, we're coming up on just about an hour here. And I really appreciate all the stories that you've shared and the experiences. They're absolutely fantastic. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you might like to share something that we may not know about you or something that you've done that isn't really super well known? (laughs) <laughs> well, I've done lots of things that are not very super well known, but you know, if we want to talk about some of the things that we had done before, uh, we were talking about the bands I played in and whatnot. There's kind of a, a funny little glimpse into it all. Uh, some friends of mine from a band I played in back in the eighties, about 1985 or six, we had a band called tricks spelt with a bunch of Y's and X's in the name, just like all the hair bands back then. And they went on to become filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, and decided they were going to quit their jobs at Showtime and get the band back together, put us all in this compound and rehearse tunes for a month and then go out and open for one of our big, at the time, heroes, you know, a, a Motley Crue or somebody of that nature, most of which shot us down before <laughs> before it ever got to that point. But uh, they, they went and, and did this put all of their eggs in one basket, if you will, and, and made a cool documentary called Hair I Go Again. And I see that it's it's starting to make a little noise on Amazon and whatnot. This was uh, probably six, seven years ago that they shot it, but it just came out maybe five or six years ago. And I see now it's, it's making a resurgence on the Amazon. So uh, they came and shot some footage at the machine shop and, uh, and uh, went on to put together a band and go and perform some songs. But uh, unfortunately, I was unable to do that part. They got, uh, gosh, uh, I want to say they got somebody from Helix to cover my part. I can't remember who they got. <laughs> Helix. I, re- I remember that band. Anyways, cool movie. Here I go again. Got a minute. We'll laugh at it. I will. I'll definitely check it out. And and it's funny when you said tricks, I was reminded of the band Trickster from back in the nineties. Uh, right. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I've mixed them. <laughs> Have you really? 
Yeah. I, like I said, I, I've mixed nearly everybody on their way up or their way down at some point. Some of them on their way up and their way down. Uh, man, did you do the Urs circuit back in the day? The no. R&B Urs? No. The drifters, the platters, the coasters, the spinners. I did all the Urs bands. I mixed them all. <laughs> Some of the many different versions because they'd split off. Oh, man. Oh, that's funny. Well, I will definitely check out the documentary. I think it would be uh, it'll be really entertaining and and informative, and it'll be cool to see you know how things have changed over the years. And I'll get to see the machine shop. Well, there you go, Kyle and Steve. There's your plug. Here I go again. You can find it on Amazon. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this up here. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure uh, getting to chat with you, and hopefully, I'll get to see you in person before too long. We'll, you know, with any luck. Sure, hope so. Man, I want to mix the show again so bad. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's fun to come down here in the studio, like I said, and mix. I've been messing around with an old Blackberry Smoke show now for this last week. Uh, something from back '06, uh, I think, is when it was recorded, but it's just not the same. I need those big speakers. I need I need that sound pressure. Like I was saying, if I can't feel it, it just doesn't sound right without the feel. <laughs> just think of how much better it'll be when we do get back into the into the clubs, and you know, you get to re re experience it again for the first time. I hope I can still do it. It's the longest I've been out of it for the thirty years that I've been into it. Yeah, it's it's crazy for sure. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll bid you farewell. I'll thank you again for your time. And like I said, I, I can't wait to get to the shop and watch you mix and get to shake your hand and hang out. And uh, I just am really looking forward to it. So thanks again for being on the podcast, John. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having me, Steve. Looking forward to meeting you in person as well. And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen & Heath D-Live system with Sure microphones and Waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime, and Facebook Messenger to meet with my guests, so the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at Mixmasters Podcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 